0: Hi, this is Lily dehoya Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Welcome to this podcast, and thank you for listening. Thanks again to all those who have signed up on Patreon. This is super helpful to me, and it allows me to keep the podcast going. So I'm really grateful that some of you have done that, and I really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you who are listening. I'm really grateful to be another voice that can testify of our Savior Jesus Christ and of the truthfulness of His gospel that exists in its fullness in the restored Church of Jesus Christ, which is now the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Real privilege for me to be another witness. So let's talk about Exodus 24, as well as chapters 31 to 34 in Exodus as well. And this is the golden calf episode, right? So there's some fireworks happening here, a tragic loss of opportunity for the children of Israel as a whole. Individually, people don't lose their opportunities if they will remain faithful, and we see that some of them did. Nevertheless, as a group, as we discussed last time, God was offering them this chance to become a Zion people, to be like the city of Enoch, and they completely reject it. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week as well as to why that may have been. But let's dive into chapter 24 first looking at verses 3 and verse 7. So Moses comes and makes this offer from the Lord to the children of Israel that if they will obey God and all his judgments and commandments, that they can be this wonderful Zion people. And they answer with one voice and say, this is the end of verse 3, all the words which the Lord hath said will we do. And again, at the end of verse 7, same thing. All that the Lord hath said will we do, and be obedient. So their initial response is to accept this tremendous offer, and Moses must have been pretty excited because he has been allowed to serve in this calling, this foreordained calling that was seen by his forefathers. And Joseph particularly writes specifically about his name, saying that Moses is going to be called to bring these people out of Egypt after they had gone in to escape the famine and and Joseph had played such a pivotal role there. All this is, is foreordained. This great opportunity comes. Moses gets to be the messenger here. So Moses is instructed to go up the mount with some of the elders of Israel. So he says that there were Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, this is verse 9 in Exodus 24, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And look at this, it's such a brief record here, but in verse 10, they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. So these People get to see God. They must have been prepared, obviously transfigured. We know that nobody can see the face of God or the presence of God in the natural man and live. But God can send his spirit to transfigure and quicken us if that is his will and there is worthiness at that time. And so 70 of the elders of Israel have this amazing opportunity to see the God of Israel. And then the Lord tells Moses in verse 12, come up to me in the mount. And then I will give you tables of stone and a law and commandments that I've written that thou mayst teach by them. So let's take this next step. And Moses rises up, verse 13, with his minister Joshua, and they go to the Mount of the Lord. So they're climbing Sinai, which is, you know, a pretty steep mountain, and Moses is 80 years old, so he must have been pretty fit still and, and sustained. And he goes up to do this, but he and Joshua then have to wait for a while. And a cloud is covering the mount. In verse 16, the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. So we're getting this view of Moses and Joshua that are kind of hidden in the cloud. But from the base of the mountain, the children of Israel are seeing that the Lord is on the mountain. It looks like devouring fire on the top of the mountain. Again, pyrotechnics are involved. And then Moses goes into the midst of the cloud, verse 18, and get him up into the mountain. And Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. Jumping to chapter 31 in the book of Exodus, it's interesting that part of the communication that the Lord gives to Moses, and we're skipping some chapters where he gives specific instructions concerning the tabernacle and some of the ordinances that are going to be a part of that, which we'll talk about in another time. But now we're going to go on with what's happening here between the Lord and Moses. chapter 31 starts with a reference to some specific workmen in the camp of Israel who have particular talents that the Lord is instructing should be used to help construct these these parts of the tabernacle in, in a beautiful way. So he mentions in verse 2, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of of the tribe of Judah. And he's filled him. This is nice, verse 3. I've filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. Verse 4, to devise cunning works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass. Verse 5, and in cutting of stones, to set them, and in carving of timber, to work in all manner of workmanship. That's That's pretty amazing. The Lord is saying, I gave him all these gifts, and he has developed them, and he can do these beautiful things out of all kinds of material, and I want him to participate in the building of these things. Verse 6, here's the second man, and I, behold, I've given with him, I'm not sure I'm going to say this right, Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I have put wisdom that they may make all that I have commanded thee. So he says, I've got many people there who have put this wisdom, this this understanding, these gifts inside, and I want them then to step forward to create this tabernacle of the congregation and the Ark of Testimony and the Mercy Seat, et cetera, and the certain furniture that will be there and the altar of incense, all of this kind of stuff. He kind of goes into some detail. And then there's a, a really big emphasis placed with Moses from the Lord, starting in verse 13, speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying... Verily, my Sabbaths ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Now, you know, let's apply this to ourselves. God is telling us that the Sabbath day has this tremendous meaning to him because it is a sign of the covenant between the Lord and his people. And it's a sign that he is the Lord that can sanctify us. So he has sanctified this Sabbath day to be observed unto the Lord in the way that he would desire. It's a consecrated day, right? This is a preliminary of our consecrated lives that we can offer to the Lord. I'm going to go on because he spends several verses on this. Verse 14, He shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people." Then he reiterates in verse 15, The laws we know at six days may thy work be done. And in the seventh it is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Verse 16, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. A perpetual covenant. That's a beautiful phrase. These are the kinds of covenants we can have with the Lord. They can be perpetual. They can continue forever. And go from generation to generation if we honor them. And here the Lord is instructing, this is a very specific way that I've designated for you to honor me, to honor this covenant in order to keep it bright between the two of us, between the Lord and each of us. And then in verse 17, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. And he tells us again that in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this right now, but I do just want to point out that we've got several verses here where the Lord is making an instruction to us. He's admonishing us that this is important. The Sabbath day represents this covenant between us, this perpetual covenant that you can have with me if you will honor me. And a specific way in which the Lord is commanding his people to honor him is by observing the Sabbath day. So always a good time to reflect and review and say, how are we honoring the Lord on the Sabbath day? And is it in the way that He desires it, or is it our version of the Sabbath day? You know, it's interesting (laughs) to, to consider, and this is not, again, ever about judging our neighbor. This is about looking in the mirror and asking the Lord, what lack I yet? Is there a way that we should increase our devotions on the Sabbath so that we honor God in the way that He has chosen Again, not not in my version of his commandment, but in his version of the commandment. So let's take this as an opportunity as we're reading these chapters to discuss this with our families, with our spouses, with, you know, look at ourselves and pray to the Lord to find out if we are doing what he would love us to do on this Sabbath. And there are many things written about this, many things that you can look up by the prophets that talk about the importance of the Sabbath day, that we not just treat it lightly, In the many years that we lived outside of Utah, and I grew up outside of Utah, but in other years where Chris and I and our family lived outside of Utah, we didn't really expect to see other people honoring the Sabbath day all that much. And when we came to Utah, we thought it would be pretty different. And in some ways, it is. We have so many chapels here and people who go to church, which is wonderful, But sometimes when our wards had been split and we were no longer in a certain building and they hadn't built other ones yet, we would have to go to a school or some other place in order to meet for a while until more chapels were built. One of the times that we were doing that, we had to pass the little strip mall where there was a grocery store that we still go to, to shop often. And there were always cars. And some of my kids were still pretty young when we came up here. And some of them would ask why are all those cars in the parking lot of the stores? Aren't we in Utah? <laughs> I mean, aren't we, are we? Aren't the people here mostly members of the church? Not less and less are we the majority in Utah. I think it's down to like fifty percent, if I'm remembering the last thing I heard. So we don't constitute the majority, and not everybody is completely active who even is a member of the church. Nevertheless, it was sad. This was this was over twenty years ago, <laughs> and so I was kind of like. Yeah, well, they're probably not all Seventh-day Adventists or Jews. There, there probably are some Mormons, <laughs> some members of the church, sorry, who are shopping on Sunday. But again, not, not for us to condemn our neighbor, but more for us to examine our own behavior and say, are we are we doing what the Lord wants us to do on the Sabbath day? I have to tell you a sweet story. When my husband grew up in Provo, Utah. He told me there were four pharmacies in town at that time, and all the proprietors of those pharmacies were members of the church. So they got together and said, how about we rotate which of us is open on Sundays? Because there are emergencies where people may need to come in and get medicine or something that is medically necessary for them or their families. So we'll keep one of our stores open, but we'll just rotate so... Each of us will take one turn basically per month. I mean, sometimes there's a fifth week. And then the rest of the times, the rest of the Sabbath days, we can go to church with our families. I thought that was such a lovely kind of Zion-like thing to do, sort of a, a wonderful community of members who wanted to honor the Sabbath day. And even though they had vital services that they offered, so they did have to have some availability, they collaborated so that they could not all have to stay open. Let's just take another look and see how we're doing and ask the Lord how we're doing. And hopefully through the Spirit, we can be personally instructed on ways that we can improve our observance of the Lord on the Sabbath day. And then may we celebrate and rejoice in this perpetual covenant between the Lord and His people. Now, in chapter 32, we have actually the story of the golden calf, and there are so many tragic parts to this. Starting right away in verse 1 of chapter 32, the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount. So I guess nobody knew it would be 40 days and 40 nights, and a few days maybe before while he and Joshua are waiting, but nevertheless, it's 40 days, 40 nights. It wasn't a year, it wasn't half a year. And the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron, and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. So 40 days, 40, and it's not even the end of it, right? But they've gone some month and a half without him, I guess. And they're like, okay, make us gods. This tells us a lot about the condition, the spiritual condition of the children of Israel would you go 40 days and 40 nights without having the prophet's voice or the scriptures with you and immediately start to make graven images or ask someone to do that for you? I hope not. I hope I wouldn't. I don't I don't think I would. So they had come out of Egypt where there is incredible idol worship and it's available everywhere and they saw it and this is this is their mentality. They've embraced some really pagan ideas here. And they can't even stretch their faith over a month and a half without saying, we need a replacement for Moses. Regardless of all the miracles that God hath wrought for us, the children of Israel, we need some idols, some pagan (laughs) idols to replace God because Moses could be gone. And then this is this is so tragic. Again, this is a sketchy record. It will be fascinating to get the more complete story, but we have some pretty specific information here. And there are some corrections here and there from Joseph Smith in the Joseph Smith translation. So he doesn't correct a lot of this. Let's go on. Verse 2 Aaron says unto them, Break off your golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives. And of your daughters, and bring them unto me. Like, go ahead, get all your jewelry that's gold so that I can make you an idol. Aaron almost immediately, well, I don't know about the almost, immediately responds to this terrible request by saying, okay, go get me some material. And they do that in verse 3. And in verse 4, he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And we're going to get another interesting take on this by Aaron later. And they said, and that they seems to be the children of Israel. So it doesn't say Aaron said this, but Aaron builds them a calf. I mean, this is an idol of gold. So then they say, I guess to the congregation at large, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Again, can we just take a second and see how incredibly blasphemous and sacrilegious this is? They have seen miracle after miracle that brings them with a mighty arm out of slavery in Egypt. And then when Pharaoh pursues them with his armies, the Red Sea parts, and they walk through on dry ground, and then they are fed by manna in the wilderness, and they see the cloud by day and the pillar of fire at night. And after 40 days, or not even the whole 40 days, they go to Aaron and say, make us gods. And once there is this golden calf, Aaron's foolishness on full display, they immediately ascribe the miracles of their redemption from slavery to the golden calf. And say, here are the gods. These are the gods right here, this golden calf that brought us out of Egypt. How quickly we forget. And then verse five, when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, and this sounds almost like Aaron's trying to kind of pull him back a minute, but again, what the heck was he thinking to build this idol? But he says, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Now, he doesn't say to the calf. So maybe he's saying, well, okay, I took your stuff to keep you busy, and I made this beautiful golden idol, which is really a filthy kind of creation to have presented to the people of Israel. They'd take it, but he says, oh, well, let's have a feast to the Lord tomorrow to maybe call them to remembrance of of the fact that it is the Lord, their God, who delivered them? I don't know exactly. Again, you know, I'm interpreting a little bit here from a sketchy record. But they rose up early on the morrow, and they offer burnt offerings and bring peace offerings. This is verse 6. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now, that is a very subtle phrase. But let us not be deceived. That means that they started to worship, um, what a terrible word, to worship this False, idolatrous God, this calf, in heathen and pagan ways. Now, I'm not going into details about this, but there were sexual orgies involved because this was the way of worship in these times. They had the God of the earth, the God of fertility, the God of the, the chief God, or whatever, and it involves all kinds of really awful, licentious, you know, terrible behaviors in order to quote unquote worship their gods. This is filthy degradation of the people who are breaking many of the Ten Commandments in this moment, in this moment. So they rise up to play. Don't be deceived. That means what they were doing was a terrible affront to God and his commandments that they well knew. Now, immediately, the Lord starts telling Moses what's going on. Verse 7 Go get thee down, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, that's kind of interesting, which thou broughtest, anyway, have corrupted themselves. And they had corrupted themselves. So look at this. They have turned aside quickly, verse 8, out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be the gods, O Israel, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Again, a direct slap in God's face. And the Lord said unto Moses, "I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people and verse ten, now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation now, who is he talking to that I'll make of thee a great nation? He offered that to the children of Israel, the children of Israel have justified themselves and lost that opportunity for good, but he is saying to Moses, I can still make a great nation of thee so God's Covenants are always available to the covenant followers. No matter what people around us are doing, if we stay true to our covenants, God will keep his covenant promises with us. This is why, and we've talked about this before, that we need to build Zion in the midst of Babylon. We can't wait until the Lord comes and cleanses the wicked off the earth and then say, okay, now we can build Zion. No, that's too late. The Lord has to come to a Zion people and to a Zion city, which will be built by people who are called out of of the church who have qualified by living Zion lives to do so. I've repeated this many times, right? But what I'm saying here is that God will keep his covenants to us, even if we live in the midst of Babylon, as long as we are covenant keepers and we honor God and obey him. And frankly, this is where I hear the word fear appropriately used. I don't believe God wants us to be terrified of him. I just believe that he wants us to be terrified of offending him. And we should be. That's what these people are doing. They are heinous in their offense toward God, ascribing the many miracles that God did to deliver them to some golden calf that they know very well is not a representation of anything righteous. And again, Aaron participates in this, you know, really crazy way. So Moses immediately goes into sort of talking to the Lord about, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't don't destroy them, don't, don't consume them with your wrath. In fact, he says, you know, wait a minute, we don't want the Egyptians in verse 12 to say that, wow, just for mischief did this God bring them out of Egypt to stay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. In other words, do we want the Egyptians to think like, oh, that's why he took them out of Israel and saved them from a life of slavery so that he could just kill them in the wilderness? So Moses is kind of like, wait, wait, Let's not do this, right? Now, and he even says something about repent of this evil against thy people at the end of verse 12. But Joseph Smith corrects that. And we've talked about this before. God doesn't ever need to repent because he never does anything wrong. He is perfect. He acts in complete truth and in complete justice and mercy. So Joseph Smith corrects that. And it's in the footnote on this page or on your phones. You can check the footnote for verse 12 that says, Turn from thy fierce wrath, thy people will repent of this evil. So he's not asking the Lord to repent. Moses is wiser than that. He does not ask God ever to repent, but he does say, let the people repent so that you can turn your wrath away when they have appropriately repented. And he talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all these promises that you said you would multiply their seed like the stars of the heaven, et cetera, et cetera. And then again, in verse 14, Joseph Smith corrects this verse because it says, the Lord repented of the evil, which he thought to do unto his people. And again, the Lord doesn't ever need to repent, so he doesn't ever repent. And this one, we go to the back of the Bible for the larger excerpts from the Joseph Smith translation, or again, you can probably find this on your phones. And he says, this is Exodus 32, verse 14, the Lord said unto Moses, and again, from the JST, If they will repent of the evil which they have done, I will spare them and turn away my fierce wrath. But behold, thou shalt execute judgment upon all that will not repent of this evil this day. Therefore, see thou do this thing that I have commanded thee, or I will execute all that which I had thought to do under my people. So, in other words, yes, there are always conditions on which people can repent, but if they don't do it, those who do not repent will have to face the judgment of God as administered by Moses the prophet. So this isn't about God repenting. It's about the people having an opportunity to repent. So Moses turned, verse 15, and he goes down from the mount. And the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. And these tables had been written on both of their sides by the finger of the Lord, as it says, right? So they were the work of God and graven upon the tables. And then uh, verse 17, Joshua hears the noise in the camp. And he says, there is a noise of war in the camp. Now, this is after Moses has descended from the top of the mount to come back to where Joshua is. And let's think for a second. Moses is on this mount for 40 days and 40 nights without food, obviously, because he's been quickened. So he's not needing food or water, and that's designated here in the record. Joshua, we don't know about, but he was waiting faithfully for Moses further down the mountain, above where the elders and Aaron had had stayed but not as far up as Moses went. And he has waited faithfully for 40 days and 40 nights, and his faith failed not. So it didn't matter how long Moses was going to be gone. Joshua was going to wait and attend to the prophet when the prophet came down, however long that took. We don't know if he also was quickened to a point where he didn't need food or water or whether he was able to find food or water on the mount. Those details aren't given. But we do know that Joshua was exceedingly faithful From the beginning, which is a a nice, refreshing moment to think about. And then he says again in verse 18, it is not the voice of them that shout for mastery. So it's not like that kind of war where somebody's trying to take over somebody else. Neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome. So it's not a tussle for power. But the noise of them that sing, do I hear? So he's hearing these pagan rituals and so on, and he's concerned— So as soon as they come nigh to camp, in verse 19, they see the calf, the dancing, and Moses's anger waxed hot. And he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. So it's interesting. Moses, you know, immediately pled for the forgiveness for the children of Israel if they would repent. And the Lord does acknowledge that if they repent, I can extend and mercy enough not to destroy them. Because that's his first Statement here is that I will consume them with my wrath because of this evil that they are doing after the mighty miracles they've seen. And Moses says, Let's, let's not consume them. But, and the Lord always knows that Moses is going to make that plea and he knows what his response is going to be. So none of this is a surprise to the Lord. And we don't change the Lord's mind. I hope we don't get that erroneous idea from these stories that, like, you know, God was going to do this and Moses talked him out of it. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. That's not what happens. God knows what Moses' petition is going to be before he even utters it. And he he is willing to hear that petition of the prophet and then to say, if they will repent, we won't destroy them all. But this consequence is bad enough. But then now Moses comes down the mountain. He's angry, too, because he has seen this whole experience of these people who have been in slavery from the time of his youth, he saw that when he was being raised in Pharaoh's house. And he even then is, is so pained by the slavery of his people that he kills that Egyptian that's, that's beating up the, the slave and has to hide in the wilderness with Jethro and his family for 40 years too. So, I mean, he's seen the whole saga from the beginning of his life to this point, 80 years later, and now sees these children of Israel being so sacrilegious And offensive to God in the ugliest of ways. So he breaks the tablets, which God never remonstrates with him about because that's pretty natural in this case. It's basically a symbol to Israel. I had this amazing Zion law to offer you, and it is no longer available to you. So pretty symbolic there with the breaking of the tables. And he took the calf which they had made, this is verse 20, and burnt it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and strewed it upon the water, and made the children of Israel drink of it. So Moses is like, we're going to start with some consequences right now. And then Moses says to Aaron, and this is so poignant in verse 21, what did this people unto thee, that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? What did they ever do to you, Aaron? What what did they do? How did they offend you, Aaron, that you would do this to them, that you would aid in their debauchery, that you would actually construct this golden calf so that they could pervert the ways of the Lord and and pervert worship into this pagan ritual that is so evil that the Lord may consume them from his righteous wrath. And Aaron says, this is what I was referring to earlier, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. So uh, obviously passing the buck. Oh, come on, don't be mad at me. You know that they're always looking for trouble. And then in verse 23, they said unto me, make us gods, which will go before us, because they say that we don't know what has become of Moses. And then in verse 24, I said, whosoever have any gold, let me break it up. And then look at this. So they gave it me, then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. Yeah, really? (laughs) I mean, I just... I don't know what happened. I don't know. I cast all this gold into the fire. What, What was that for anyway? And then there came out this calf. That's not really what the record says. It says that he made this calf, formed it, and then he even graved upon it or did some engravings to decorate this idol. So a pretty lame response here. And I have a note that I made in one of the margins, fake leadership, And I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Let's kind of finish this episode here in chapter 32, where Moses then sees that the people are naked in verse 25. And again, that is a clear indication about what was going on for those who are at all familiar with the Canaanite area of the world and how they worshiped their idols in really debauched ways. So then in verse 26, this famous question that Moses asks to the camp of Israel saying, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And look at the response. All the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. Moses himself is a Levite, maybe you remember. And perhaps that's why these people came to him, because they felt some connection with Moses and Aaron, who were of this same tribe. I don't know. Maybe they were just a little bit more horrified at this than most of the other people in, in the camp. For whatever reason, when Moses asks who's on the Lord's side, it's the sons of Levi who gather themselves and come unto him. And then look at this terrible command that he gives them, but that must must be executed. He says unto them in verse 27, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate through the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Now, he's obviously talking about the people who were involved in this licentious evil worship, fake worship to a fake God. And he says, all right, if you're really on the Lord's side, take out your swords and kill this group of people right here. And he is acknowledging that this is a challenging task because you're going to be killing every man, your brother or companion or your neighbor. Some of them are your neighbors or your brothers. But if you're on the Lord's side, we have to get rid of this element right now that has gone too far, And the children of Levi, verse 28, did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. So this terrible task is accomplished, but it's a necessary task because God will not suffer that those people remain in the camp of Israel who have gone to this extent to degrade themselves after all that had been shown and done for them. And then we jump down to verse 30. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord peradventure, I shall make an atonement for your sin. And that's an interesting idea that Moses had, not really a correct one, and we'll see what the Lord corrects in his thinking there. But let's go back now to the idea of fake leadership, because this is an important point. As a counselor, I talk to a lot of parents, and sometimes these parents, as they're describing one of their children, and particularly, they may have a concern about this child, but they'll say, you know, they're really a natural leader, and they just have this gift, you know, and they're they're just really a strong personality. And then as they go on and talk to me, they're telling me things like that they are being influenced by their peers, or that they're starting to maybe stray from some of the rules that the parents have set, the standards that the parents are trying to teach the children, and i and i go back sometimes and challenge that and say like well that's not leadership you realize that that that's following that's not leading and i've suggested that maybe we're mistaking sometimes leadership for charisma there are people of every age who have kind of a natural charisma and they can attract people's interest and they might get their attention, they might be able to speak to those people or seem to be in a leadership position, but if they don't truly lead, then it's fake leadership. They're really more of a follower than they are of a leader. They may they may attract people to them, and they may have some of those characteristics that draw people to them, but unless they are truly standing up for something and leading them in a good direction, that's not that's not really leadership. That's just charisma. So I think it's important to distinguish between those two things and recognize that leadership, whether you're charismatic or not, doesn't ever involve following except following the Lord and not following our peers or other people or other voices that would take us away from the standards of the Lord. Leadership is being true to the standards of the Lord regardless of who else is mocking from the Great and Spacious Building. And there are always going to be mockers. It's certainly something that the Lord has warned us about. There will be people who don't stop at mocking, but even persecute the righteous. And true leadership is to step in a bold way forward, doing the will of the Lord. And yes, trying to help others find that same path. So I wanted to share something that I remember from my undergrad years at BYU, It was a play, a musical that was put on there on campus. I don't even remember how I found out about it because it had some performance dates and I think all the tickets were sold. So I knew somebody who was able to get me in to a dress rehearsal. So the theater was mostly empty. There were just a few of us there. And I was able to see this musical called Stone Tables. And it was really beautifully done and powerful, and written, incidentally, by someone who was not famous at the time, but was currently serving a mission. And his name was Orson Scott Card. Now, maybe you've heard that name before. He's become much better known than he was there. But he had been a student on campus and then was, at that time, away on his mission. But he had written this musical, and it was performed by the drama department at BYU. And it was about this golden calf incident and the breaking of the stone tables and so on. And, you know, it had kind of a nice resolution, if I remember right. But the part that I will never forget was this scene, this very intense scene that was well displayed there by the students who were doing the play. And it's between Moses and Aaron. And Moses is confronting Aaron, as we just read here a few verses ago. What did this people unto you? Like, what did they do to you that you would facilitate their sin, that you would make it easier for them to debauch themselves and to offend their God. And Aaron's answer in this play is, but they came to me and I was their leader. And then Moses's reply, as written by Brother Card there was, then why did you follow them? And I've never forgotten that, as you see, it was so beautifully portrayed in that moment, the way that language was chosen, that this is fake leadership, Aaron. If you're a leader, you don't follow the people. You don't facilitate their sin. Why did you follow them if you were the leader? I think it's an important conversation to have with our kids. What constitutes true leadership? True leaders sometimes end up alone, or with few around them. The sons of Levi came to Moses, but he didn't worry about how many did not come. And he didn't follow the people as his brother Aaron had done. It's it's important to understand, leaders don't follow the crowd. They follow the Lord. As you may know, Orson Scott Card went on to write some pretty well-known pieces, including Ender's Game, which they made into a movie several years ago, and lots of other things. He's he's become a very successful writer, but he sure showed his talent early then. I asked about who it was who had written it because I was hoping to get a copy of the play. And I even think I wrote to his mission to see if he would give permission for me to get a copy. And I, don't, I imagine the letter was lost. I never heard, but I'll never forget it. And I'm grateful to Brother Card for that tremendous insight about leadership. Now let's go back to the record. We're still in Exodus 32. Now, Moses has gone back up the mount, and he returns to the Lord in verse 31, I guess, and says, This people have sinned a great sin, and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. Now, he's talking about which book. This is the Lamb's Book of Life. It is referred to in other scriptures. It's mentioned as the Book of Remembrance sometimes, or the Lamb's Book of Life, or the Book of Life. And this is the book wherein the names of the celestial are written, the names of those who become the church of the firstborn that will enter into God's presence and into his kingdom. So this is a pretty important book, this this record that is kept of the righteous. And Moses is saying, you know, forgive them or just blot my name out of this book. And the Lord teaches this important clarification, which Moses should have known, right? And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. So I'm not going to blot your name out. You're not the one who sinned. It's the ones who sinned and don't repent. Their names are blotted out. In other words, what's he saying here? Moses, in sort of an atoning fashion, wants to come and say, you know, let me carry that sin of these people. And I will, I'll carry the cost of that sin. And the Lord says, no. That's not how it works. Christ carried the sin for all of us if we will repent. And if we repent, our names are not being blotted out of that book. But only those who sin and don't repent will be left out of that book or their names blotted out. And again, at the end of verse 34, after he tells Moses, go and lead these people to this place that I've spoken to you about, then he says, nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. So their sin is their sin unless they repent, just as our sins are our sins, unless we repent. In chapter 33, the Lord confirms to Moses what the intention is of his having brought these people out of the land of Egypt and out of slavery. Looking in verse 2, I'm going to send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, unto a land, verse 3, flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in the midst of thee for there art a stiff-necked people, lest they consume you by the way. <laughs> so the Lord's still like, I'll send an angel for now. Now, notice that the Lord said he was going to drive out all those other tribes. Now, he's doing that by the hand of Israel. And you remember from past lessons on the Old Testament that when the children of Israel enter this land flowing with milk and honey, which is you know present-day Israel, that the Lord does command them to drive those people out and to destroy them. And why, again, I'm just... Saying what I've said before in chapter 15 of Genesis, when God is promising Abraham that even though Abraham is a stranger in a strange land, that his seed, after coming out of slavery, will be given this land that will be their inheritance. And he says, this is chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 16, because he talks about how they're going to be actually in captivity for 400 years, and then he says, "'In the fourth generation they shall come hither again, "'for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full.'" Now, I've mentioned that before, but I'm just mentioning it again to show that all these things are known to God. You're not making this up as he goes along. So we may not see how God works with people, but we can by looking at this long view. When we're looking just at what's happening to us, we may easily forget that God always sees the end from the beginning, and when he makes promises, he knows that he will fulfill them and it will be fair to everybody. So he was telling Abraham, I can't let your seed that will become a great multitude inherit this land yet because the people who are living there have not ripened in iniquity. And I won't destroy them until they have, you know, shot their whole bolt. I won't destroy them before it's time. But they are going to defile themselves and corrupt themselves so much that it's not going to be worth sending new spirits into those homes because they won't have a chance to exercise agency and no good from evil before they even reach the age of accountability. So we have to wait and give people time to fill the cup of wrath if that's what they choose to do in evil, but I won't drive them out before that. So now he's telling Moses that the time is now. The Canaanites like the people on the earth at the time of Noah, have ripened in iniquity. So it is time to clear the earth of them, which will serve my purposes because I will no longer be sending spirits into those homes where they cannot possibly fulfill the measure of their creation. So, you know, he's always doing more than one thing at the same time. I've talked about this amazing engineering of our God, who doesn't ever do just one thing at a time. He's doing all these things that are both just and merciful. So this is the time for the Israelites to go into that land and cleanse it of the wickedness of those Canaanites who have corrupted themselves. And then Moses, you know, has built this tabernacle and he is speaking, which is a temporary and portable building, right? It's made with with cloths and kind of tent materials and so on so that it can go with the children of Israel as they go through the wilderness. But Moses enters in and is able to go into the Holy of Holies where he spoke to the Lord face to face in verse 11, as a man speaketh unto his friend. And then he turns again to the camp and his servant Joshua, a young man departed not out of the tabernacle. So Joshua is with Moses always as basically his best lieutenant, who is righteous and faithful throughout. And then in verse 18, Moses asks the Lord to show him his glory. And he's been talking with him then about, you know, go with us or don't send us at all if we can't have thy presence with us and so on. And again, it's not that Moses talks God into anything. That's not what happens. But it is that that God knows that Moses needs to have this conversation that he can petition the Lord, and the Lord will show mercy, that he will go up with the children of Israel through the wilderness. But there is a correction here in verse 20. So let's read the Joseph Smith translation version of Exodus thirty-three twenty. And he, meaning the Lord, spake unto Moses, Thou canst not see my face at this time, lest mine anger be kindled against thee also, and I destroy thee and thy people. For there shall no man among them... See me at this time, and live, for they are exceeding sinful, and no sinful man hath at any time, neither shall there be any sinful man at any time that shall see my face and live now Moses isn't sinful, but the Lord is still is still saying no this is this is not possible to happen right now, after the great sins of Israel. I am still in my righteous indignation. So because of the sin of the people, this isn't a good time for you to see my face, but let's just consider that the people of Israel are not going to see my face because of their exceeding sin, and that that is contrary to the nature of God, because no sinful thing can enter his presence ever. Now, there are some people amongst Moses and amongst the children of Israel, like Joshua, who, if they continue worthy, will end up sanctified and be able to see my face at that time. And that does happen to the righteous people of any generation with the gospel restored and with the keys of the priesthood and the temple. But he is saying, no, we're not going to do that right now. Then this verse has caused a lot of confusion to the Christian world, right? Because here in verse 20, where it says in the King James translation, thou canst not see my face for there shall no man see me and live. You know, this becomes an argument as to any heavenly revelation or visitation. And you know how could Joseph Smith have seen the Father and the Son when God himself told Moses that no man can see him and live? Well, that's not what he said. And Joseph Smith corrects that translation to be more correct and complete so that it says that it's sinful people who can't see me and live. But the righteous can, at the right time, with worthiness and transfiguration or sanctification if they have completed that path. And then the Lord in mercy says, okay, I'm going to pass by thee. And in verse 22, you know, I'm going to put you in a cliff of a rock and I'll cover thee with my hand while I pass by, but then I'll take my hand away. Verse 23, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Not at that time. As we know, Moses did converse with the Lord on occasions. And then in chapter 34, the last chapter of this group, we have new tables of stone that are hewn that Moses hews out of rock and takes up the mount again. And the Lord says, okay, I'm going to write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables, which thou breakest. So remember, again, the Ten Commandments were part of that first set of laws, and they continue to be the foundation of any set of laws of the Lord. So that's not Law of Moses stuff that was just pertaining to, to the carnal commandments or the schoolmaster law. Those are eternal law, and he's put in the same law, in the tablets here this second time. And so Moses goes and presents himself up on Mount Sinai, goes to the top of the Mount again in verse 2. And then, you know, he he makes these two new tables, and the Lord descends in a cloud in verse 5 and proclaims some of his names, right? The Lord has many wonderful names that are descriptors. And as the Lord passes by before him in verse 6, he proclaims, "'The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering,' and abundant in goodness and truth. Those are all beautiful, beautiful descriptors of of the God we worship. Verse 7, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. And we're going to talk about this later also. So hold that thought in verse 7. And then we're going to go on and jump ahead to verse 28, Or Moses was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights again, and did neither eat bread nor drink water. So even though there was some respite in the camp, we don't know how long that time was that, that he was there in the tabernacle and conversed with the Lord there, but within a fairly brief period, Moses does a second fast, so to speak, while he is transfigured and in the presence of the Lord on Mount Sinai. And he wrote upon the tables the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So again, the foundation of all basic civilization, it seems. And then Moses comes down, and he didn't know, in verse 29, that his face shone white while he's speaking to the Lord so that Aaron and the children of Israel see Moses and they're afraid to come close to him because of how his face shines. So interestingly, he puts a veil over his face for a while until the glory of the Lord has departed from his face so that the people won't be too afraid and the glory won't overtake them. So let's talk about what happens now to the children of Israel. And I'm not going to get into the schoolmaster law yet, which we'll talk about later, but I do want to talk about this kind of conflict, seeming conflict, between justice and mercy and how important it is for us to understand both of these essential qualities of our God. So let's start by reading in Alma 42, where Alma's talking to his son Corianton, who, as you may remember, went lusting after the harlot Isabel— and was sinful. So, Alma was talking to him about the laws of restoration and restitution and how things work for sinners. And chapter 42 in Alma is really quite the exposition. It's a little tough to follow, I think, because you really have to keep these concepts straight, but it's worth going back over it until it's clear for us. So, just quoting from verses 22 through 25 in Alma 42, but there is a law given and a punishment affixed, and a repentance granted, which repentance mercy claimeth. Otherwise justice claimeth the creature, and executeth the law, and the law inflicteth the punishment. So what is he saying? He's saying that there are laws given, and they all have punishments affixed. We've talked about this before. Sin brings suffering. That is inevitably the case. That is a law of all the cosmos, a universal law that When laws are broken, there must be suffering in order to pay the debt of the law. So these are punishments that are affixed for the breaking of the law, not because God is harsh or unkind or punitive, but because this is the universal law within which God lives, and that is why he has the power he has, because he lives within law perfectly. So this law given and a punishment affixed and a repentance granted. So this is the great plan of salvation that we are all sinners and we will make mistakes and sometimes sin, but we don't have to always experience the punishment to its full extent, although there is some suffering involved in repentance. I hope we are old enough to know that and wise enough to know that, that if we repent without suffering, we haven't really repented completely (laughs) because we should feel sorrow for sin. We should feel brokenhearted that we have offended the Lord and broken His law, and we should Come to love all sinners, but to hate all sin. So anyway, repentance is what allows mercy to claim her own. Otherwise, as Alma said here, justice would claim the creature and execute the law. And repentance is the pivotal issue. If we repent because of the gracious plan of God and the merciful atonement of Christ, we can escape the punishment that is affixed to the law that we have broken. If not so, the works of justice would be destroyed and God would cease to be God. Going on, but God ceaseth not to be God, and mercy claimeth the penitent. The penitent, that means the one who is sorrowful for their sin and has fulfilled the process of repentance willingly and completely. And mercy cometh because of the atonement. Again, none of this could be available to us if not for the atonement. And the atonement bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead, and the resurrection of the dead bringeth back men into the presence of God, and thus they are restored into his presence to be judged according to their works, according to law and justice. For behold, justice exerciseth all his demands. In other words, nothing's going to stop justice from playing out. That would never balance the universe, and God would not be able to be God. Justice will exercise all his demands. And also, mercy claimeth all which is her own. And then I love this conclusory sentence. And thus, none but the truly penitent are saved. That's such an important idea, that to be saved from our sins— We must be truly penitent. We can't just go through the motions of repentance. We can't just say, you know, sorry and move on like sometimes our kids want to. But we need to truly be sorry. We teach our children to have true sorrow for sin. And then to be sorry enough that we change, because that's one of the great synonyms of repentance is change, so that we no longer sin nor have the desire to sin, because we recognize how much it will separate us from our Heavenly Father. And then this nice next verse, what do you suppose that mercy can rob justice? I say unto you, nay, not one whit. If so, God would cease to be God. So God is both just and merciful. And the way that that can happen is because through the atonement of Christ, we have an opportunity to repent of our sins, to truly change, to hate the sin, but not hate ourselves, and to love the Lord fully and come unto Him penitent with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, committed to change, committed to making restitution to those we have hurt or offended, or to God or to whomever has been offended by our sin, and then to carry on with a new life, a new life that is clean from that sin, and then both justice and mercy are satisfied. Christ's atonement satisfies the justice part of our sins, and mercy can enter in on the conditions of repentance. Again, how often do we hear that God cannot save us in our sins, but he can save us from them if we repent. So I love that. I love that whole chapter, chapters 42. Don't get discouraged if you read it and it's a little esoteric because there's a lot of of really important principle in there. But the more familiar we become with it, the more clear it starts to be. Now, one of the Easter talks that Chris and I listened to was by Jeff Holland, and it was the one that is called Where Justice, Love, and Mercy Meet. Beautiful, beautiful speech. Really enjoyed it again on Holy Week. And that line comes from one of our sacrament hymns, right? It's the hymn, How Great the Wisdom and the Love. And let's see if I can remember that last verse, something like this. How great, how glorious, how complete— redemption's grand design, where justice, love, and mercy meet in harmony divine. That's a beautiful, beautiful sentence. That This is the plan of our Heavenly Father, where justice, love, and mercy come into harmony because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, because Christ was victorious over sin and the grave, over death and sin forever through his agony in gethsemane and on the cross as well as his glorious resurrection beautiful time of year i hope you're still celebrating a little bit or have a little bit of that easter feeling still in you and every sunday every sacrament for the rest of our lives may we have that great celebratory feeling about justice love and mercy coming together but this balance is so important to teach and sometimes kind of difficult so i looked up some things that i wanted to share about this balance and And I'm just going to quote from some great people who have put this in really nice words. This is actually C. Robert Line, who I think is involved with the Book of Mormon project. Forgiveness is real, and our Father in heaven is willing and able to forgive when we follow his plan. But forgiveness does not bring about an automatic reinstatement of all opportunities and blessings that an individual may have squandered. The repentant transgressor can go on in faithful service in the kingdom, yet despite the miracle of forgiveness, sin can leave an indelible mark on our mortal lives. Now, let's specify, on our mortal lives is correct, not on our eternal lives, because God can restore everything in the resurrection. But in our mortal lives, sometimes we do carry a burden from a previous sin or a choice that we've made that isn't going to be completely reconciled until the resurrection. But can we be forgiven? Absolutely. So the balance here is to not exploit the idea of forgiveness and think that, well, I can, I can you know, sin gleefully and carelessly and thoughtlessly or rebelliously, but then I can clean up my act and still pass, go and collect $200. Now, sometimes that's not going to happen. Sometimes we are going to miss an opportunity. And the reason I'm talking about this is because the children of Israel missed this opportunity. They had the chance to become Zion, but that chance was taken away. And instead of becoming a nation of priests and, and kings and queens and priests and priestesses, they were not ever going to become Zion in this life. That opportunity was lost. Now, individuals who chose to keep that covenant could attain that Zion stature of sanctification and qualification for entry into the kingdom of God. And that will never be taken away from a single penitent soul. If we are following on that path and we do repent as needful and change and we don't squander our opportunities, then those opportunities will come to us at the right time and place. But Israel as a whole lost this opportunity. So see the balance here I'm trying to achieve? And it's is—it's a little tricky. I hope I can explain it well, and especially through some of the words of these people who have put it well, that we don't want to overdo our confidence to the point where we are careless with the opportunities that God offers us, recognizing that time can be wasted, years can pass that are not spent in the way they should be. And that's a shame can we come back and be forgiven? Yes, because mercy will claim her own. And if we fully repent, even if we're at the 11th hour with the labors of the 11th hour, whatever, we will get the same wages in the resurrection. But in this life, we may miss out on some opportunities. And we don't have to if we are more respectful of these wonderful commandments that God has given us. If we are wise And learn to obey the commandments of the Lord. This is also Alma de Corianton in the Book of Mormon, right? O be wise, learn wisdom in thy youth. Learn to obey the commandments of God. The sooner we learn, the better. The less time we waste in sin or in rebellion or in careless or thoughtless inactivity or or inertia in our lives, the better, because we will have opportunities that come to us in mortal life that otherwise we might miss. It doesn't mean we can't fully repent and fully be forgiven, but let's be wise and not waste too much time. Let's not waste our chance to become a Zion people because God will raise up others to be a Zion people if we don't accept that opportunity. Going on, sin can cause individuals, this is still brother line, may cause individuals to miss out on certain opportunities in life, opportunities that often never return. Additionally, Sin can carry consequences that may last for a lifetime, even after an individual has repented. Often, visible and invisible scars are left that might not be removed during one's mortal life. This is not meant to be dark or depressing. This is meant to be wise, to help us be wise and realize that I don't want to miss opportunities in my life, so let me not waste any more time. Let me not waste time lingering in a valley of sin or in the wilderness of sin, and then think, well, I can always go back and pass, go and collect $200. I may have missed several times where I could have gone around that monopoly board and collected $200 of blessings or opportunities that now I may never get in this life. I can have them in the hereafter. Remember when they raised the bar on missionaries? They used that term, we're going to raise the bar. And that was the same message that they were telling us then, that is still in practice now, which is that They were really trying to discourage our young men and our young women who go on missions, but the young men who are actually called to go on missions, and you heard all those calls during General Conference, right? That they still are encouraging our young men to fulfill that priesthood responsibility to go on a mission, and young women if they desire. And they announced this many years ago and said that, that This day of of like messing around in your youth or adolescence or whatever, and then spending six months repenting and going on a mission, that those days needed to be over. So they were instituting some more clear standards that they said was kind of like raising the bar on missionary service. And there were some activities that might deprive someone, even after they had repented, of missionary service as in the case of a young man who fathers a child out of wedlock or is party to an abortion. These are serious things to the Lord. And if that young man then repents, he can be forgiven, but he may not ever serve a mission. So they were saying there are opportunities that can be missed if we are careless about the commandments and thoughtless about the great blessing that it is for God to tell us how to stay on the path toward his kingdom. So there are some things that that might cost us in this mortal life that wouldn't have to happen if we would be more quick to obey. From Boyd K. Packer, and this is the other side. So again, we're trying to balance this out with hope and understanding of the great atonement of Christ. President Packer said, Some worry endlessly over missions that were missed, or marriages that did not turn out, or babies that did not arrive, or children that seem lost, or dreams unfulfilled, or because age limits what they can do. I do not think it pleases the Lord when we worry because we think we never do enough, or that what we do is never good enough. Some needlessly carry a heavy burden of guilt which could be removed through confession and repentance. In other words, let's not sell the Lord short. If we have missed some opportunities, that should not stop us from moving forward with with a broken heart and a contrite spirit coming to the Lord and finding that healing and remaining humble enough to be committed to obedience, we move on and know that the Lord will pay even those that come at the 11th hour the same wages if we are earnest in our commitment to our covenants. But we may miss out on some opportunities. This is an important balance. (laughs) you know don't don't lose hope don't endlessly worry if we have missed opportunities if we were in a place where we didn't receive some blessings or some opportunities because of choices that we were making let's move on in hope and praise and rejoicing that the lord has his arms extended all the day long so don't worry about it but if we can teach our children to avoid that if we ourselves can avoid that and not waste time or opportunity then We'll always be grateful for that, right? Elder Richard Scott, if you have repented from serious transgression and mistakenly believe that you will always be a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God, learn that is not true. Find encouragement in the lives of Alma the Younger and the sons of Mosiah. They were tragically wicked, yet their full repentance and service qualified them to be considered as noble and as righteous as Captain Moroni. To you who have sincerely repented, yet continue to feel the burden of guilt, realize that to continue to suffer for sins when there has been proper repentance and forgiveness of the Lord is prompted by the master of deceit. Lucifer will encourage you to continue to relive the details of past mistakes—don't do it—knowing that such thoughts can hamper your progress. Thus, he attempts to tie strings to the mind and body so that he can manipulate you like a puppet to discourage personal achievement. I think that's beautifully put. Jeff Holland, from however long and hard the road is, you can change anything you want to change, and you can do it very fast. Another satanic sucker punch is that it takes years and years and eons of eternity to repent. That's just not true. It takes exactly as long to repent as it takes to say, I'll change and mean it. Of course, there will be problems to work out and restitutions to make. And as we've noted, there may be some opportunities lost, you may well spend, indeed, you had better spend the rest of your life proving your repentance by its permanence. But change, growth, renewal, and repentance can come for you as instantaneously as they did for Alma and the sons of Mosiah. That's another beautiful reminder. Once we turn our hearts to the Lord, He will come into our lives because we are inviting Him in and He will help and bless us. So sin is not the problem. It's the lack of repentance and Recognizing that wasted time is wasted time in this mortal sphere, but not forever. President Kimball has said there are many people who seem to rely solely on the Lord's mercy rather than on accomplishing their own repentance. The Lord may temper justice with mercy, but he will never supplant it. Mercy can never replace justice. God is merciful, but he is also just. Again, find this balance. And thus, only the truly penitent are saved, right? Because then neither mercy nor justice are robbed of their due. Now, I want to end with this beautiful story by Henry B. Iring from a speech he gave called Do Not Delay. And I have to give special thanks to my daughter, Faith, and her husband, Spencer, because we were visiting with them and having a dinner with them, and we were in our discussion mentioning something that reminded me of this talk. Now, I didn't remember the details very well, but I remembered enough of the details that Spencer kind of Googled it on his phone and found the speech and then was able to read it to us so that I could get my details more correct. That was probably a year or so ago. And then this time, when I was thinking about this speech again, I Googled it and I couldn't find it, so I I texted them. And I must be really bad at finding search terms sometimes. I mean, sometimes I'm okay, but sometimes my search terms aren't very effective. And so this time it was Faith who put some search terms in and found the speech and sent it to me or or gave me the title so I could look it up. Anyway, it was one. I really appreciate their help. My kids are a lot more effective at some of those things than I am. This is from Henry Irene's speech called Do Not Delay. There is another temptation to be resisted. It is to yield to the despairing thought that it is too hard and too late to repent. I knew a man once who could have thought that and given up. When he was 12, he was ordained a deacon. Some of his friends tempted him to begin to smoke. He began to feel uncomfortable in church. He left his little town, not finishing high school, to begin a life following construction jobs across the United States. He was a heavy equipment operator. He married. They had children. The marriage ended in a bitter divorce. He lost his children. He lost an eye in an accident. He lived alone in boarding houses. He lost everything he owned except what he could carry in a trunk. One night, as he prepared to move yet again, he decided to lighten the load of that trunk. Beneath the junk of years, he found a book. He never knew how it got there. It was the Book of Mormon. He read it through and the Spirit told him it was true. He knew then that all those years ago he had walked away from the true church of Jesus Christ and from the happiness which could have been his. Later, he was my more than 70-year-old district missionary companion. I asked the people we were teaching as I testified of the power of the Savior's atonement to look at him. He had been washed clean and given a new heart, and I knew they would see that in his face. I told the people that what they saw was evidence that the atonement of Jesus Christ could wash away all the corrosive effects of sin. That was the only time he ever rebuked me. He told me in the darkness outside the trailer where we had been teaching that I should have told the people that while God was able to give him a new heart, he had not been able to give him back his wife and his children and what he might have done for them. But he had not looked back in sorrow and regret for what might have been. He moved forward, lifted by faith to what yet might be. One day he told me that in a dream the night before, the sight in his blind eye was restored. He realized that the dream was a glimpse of a future day walking among loving people in the light of a glorious resurrection. Tears of joy ran down the deeply lined face of that towering, raw-boned man. He spoke to me quietly with a radiant smile. I don't remember what he said he saw, but I remember that his face shone with happy anticipation as he described the view. With the Lord's help and the miracle of that book in the bottom of a trunk, it had not for him been too late, nor the way too hard." I love that story, and I love all the great examples of how kind the Lord is when we, with an honest heart and real intent, turn away from sin and turn towards the Son of God, our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We may lose some opportunities in this life, but we will not lose anything in the eternities if we return to God. We don't have to lose opportunities here. If we will hasten to repent But let us never forget that repentance is available to all of us at any time that we choose to follow the commandments, return to the Lord, and repent honestly and earnestly. I invite you again to consider subscribing for some extra content on Patreon. Thanks to those of you who have done that. Patreon is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash choosing glory if you'd like to take a look at that. Thanks very much to my husband, Chris Anderson, and to Doug Larson of Point Digital. Let's not miss our opportunity in this day, in this dispensation, to be a part of the building up of Zion in our own lives. That is our opportunity right now. Let's not miss it. Let's build Zion. Let's choose glory. Take care.